four, three, two, one. Boom. The lost art of knife making. <laughs> it's still alive. How are you, man? I'm doing good, man. Thanks really, for coming down here. I appreciate I, it. Fucking huge. I really appreciate you having me down. Hey, listen, man. You've made two awesome, well, four awesome knives for me, but this one um, is one I use all the time that uh, I've posted on Instagram that people freak out, as we were talking about before the podcast, that it actually has Meteor in it. Yeah. Meteorite. What's, Meteor's a big one. Meteorite's a little one. Is that the idea? Do you know? I guess. Yeah. You should know. I know. I should You're the know. knife maker. So I, I didn't actually make, so I made the knife, I forged the knife, but the steel is is a very special kind of steel that very few people can actually manufacture on a small scale in the world. And that was made by my shopmate, Peter Swarzberg. And so um, the meteorite is kind of a, a small element in the whole matrix because most meteorite is all nickel or all iron or something like that. And this one particularly is a lot of nickel and some cobalt. And if you're going to make an actual usable steel out of it, you can't really use a whole lot of it in the overall mixture. Mm. So is there any meteorites that are made out of all iron? Yeah, definitely. You just have to find them? You just got to find the ones. Yeah, and there, there are impact sites all over the world. Like, they're hitting the world all the time. How um, does it work? Is it... Can you just take them? Like when they land, is it yours if you find it? Yep. Like the, you don't have to report it to NASA or anything, right? No. no. Um, hey, bro, found some yeah. space junk. <laughs> Most of them are, are are so small that they, by the time they get would here, hit the actual Earth's surface, mm -hmm. they've completely disintegrated or burned up. So it's the really massive ones. And this was part of uh, an impact, I think, in South America. Oh wow! I can't remember where exactly. <laughs> It's just crazy to think that there's a piece of space in there. Fuck yeah, dude. This dope pattern. Um, I'm really into craftsmanship, man. I always have been. I love handmade pool cues and this desk, which is a handmade desk. Yeah. And I feel like it's one of the things that I really appreciate in this modern digital world. And I also feel like, unfortunately, it may be one of the things that's slipping away. It, it definitely is slipping away. I think with... Um you know, with technolo technology has been great for us in a lot of different ways. Like, we couldn't be fucking talking into a piece of metal right. and it's recorded on a computer. It's going through a wire, <laughs> yeah. flying through the air. Like, it does a lot of great things, but in doing all those great things, it actually has taken us away from really creating and working with our hands. And so, like, you know, even this whole, like... Uh, farm to table movement, or people mm -hmm. even growing their own vegetables. Yeah. You got your own chickens. You, they're they're laying eggs for you. Like knowing where this stuff is coming from, having like firsthand contact with that, um, just having that relationship in general with it brings so much more value to the overall experience of eating those eggs or using that knife or yeah. sitting at this fucking table right here. And it seems like a, a fairly recent movement in that direction, right? Like it feels like things got so digital that people are like, whoa, 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 with the Facebook and the fucking Instagram. I want, right. I, you know, I want a wood table. Yeah. I want to saw this Something bitch tangible. myself. Yeah. Put your hands on it. Yeah, I don't want it to be plastic. Yeah. I want real stuff. And there's something about handmade things, whether it's a handmade pair of boots or a handmade bag. Like it's like there's something about things that are made by hand that people get a, like a deep appreciation of from. For, for yeah. sure. Well, and I think it, 
I think it also kind of goes back, like I was saying, like as technology has advanced, we've kind of grown away from these kind of what's considered like blue collar work yeah. and craftsmanship kind of work. But I think people really are driven by a sense of achievement. And when you're doing data entry that literally millions of people, fucking monkeys can be trained to do, not to like diminish anything that anybody's doing, but literally like to, to be able to, to go into a craft and to uh, and have a hands-on experience is very, 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 very different. And that sense of achievement, even when somebody comes out of something, and maybe I taught a class on how to make a knife and it looks like a fucking turd, they're going to think it looks like the most beautiful fucking knife they've ever seen in their life because their hands and their creativity, they've touched their it. energy, yeah. their, their sweat, and pro- probably some of their blood is put into creating that thing and that brings that much more value to it. Yeah, I think that's an issue with people today that have jobs that they don't feel are very fulfilling is that there's no real thing that they're creating at the end. Whereas like if you make a table and at the end when you're putting the final sanding on and the final, you know, uh, layer of, of uh, stain and you're looking at it like I fucking made this. Like yeah. this is a real thing that I can touch that I made. Just like human beings in our current form. We have a there's a, a deep connection to making things, physical things, and Absolutely. and and, and a, an appreciation for things that people have made, whether it's a, a rifle that somebody made or a knife or you know a hammer that's that someone's made. There's something about that that we we just have a real appreciation for. If you can buy a, a knife from the store that's made in a shop, I mean it'll work. You know, some knife that's made in some mass manufacturing process, it'll work and it's fine. I mean, you'll, you'll yeah. appreciate it, but you won't appreciate it like I appreciate this thing. Like every time I take this out, I'm like super careful with it. And, <laughs> you know, and then the handle, the handle's made out of, this is a moose antler and yeah. elk antler, right? The right. elk at the top and the moose at the bottom. So, uh, And I saw your conversation or listened to your conversation with Guy Ritchie and you brought up that it, there was, I think actually Jamie pulled it up and it was like bog oak. And Guy yeah. Ritchie was like bog oak what bog are there american bogs (laughs) i don't know if there are any american bogs it was from a a bog in russia and it was carbon dated to 5400 years old so essentially it's been sunken in a bog just that's the other knife that you made for me yeah that has a handle made bog oak that's how's one to get a hold of bog oak so people are raising logs like there actually was a show i think it was on discovery channel or history where people were their job was raising logs Out out of the swamps down in Louisiana and in the South and using making use of that wood for table projects and craft mm. projects like this. So that but that's happening all over the world. Mm. And some of that stuff are these ancient logs that it you know, it's the right in conditions where the log the tree falls over, it just sits there and steeps and you know that's a big thing for up. pool cue shafts. Lakewood shafts, they, they like to take these logs out of the bottom of like Lake Michigan or something. Right. And then they uh, dry it all out and, and then they make shafts out of it. And there's something about it being in the bottom of the water for so long, it does something to the to the way they feel. Right. What do you got there, Jamie? That's ancient bogwood dice. artisan dice. dice. Oh. <laughs> some Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, that's there. some that's yeah. some nerd shit right there, son. <laughs> it's like super polished up though. It looks cool. Are those Dungeons and Dragon nerds dice? Sorta, of, yeah. Nerd dice. <laughs> Multi sided, yeah. Like sixteen yeah. sides on that. Now yeah. what would that was only for a game, right? You wouldn't play dice dice. Yeah. 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 The, they they use it for all though. kinds of different they're actually like value holders for the most part. 
value holders? What do you yeah, mean? Yeah, so like 16, so they count down with the dice, and so they have an actual placeholder sitting there that says 16, 15, 20, whatever. Oh, you understand right. Dungeons and Dragons. You might I, be a dork. <laughs> Sometimes I'm a dork. <laughs> uh, brother, my, my brother-in-law uh, is uh, Magic the Gathering. Oh, that's super dork. That's for people that get kicked out of the Dungeons and Dragons. Dude, it's, so it's, it's just a different iteration of chess, really. I mean, it's just it's all strategies. Oh, it's definitely not that. What is this? Oh, that's a beautiful handle. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Bearing Maid. That kid's in Montana. Really good guy. He's a nice kid. Mm. Met him a couple of years ago in, uh, in Eugene, actually. They do a, a knife show there every so year that log, in April. So that, that image that you just showed, Jamie, that's bog oak. That's some other like big chunks of it that they pulled out. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So there must be a community of you people, these these knife making people. Yeah, there there are quite a few people who have started getting into the knife making, um, the knife making, um, the world, <laughs> the world knife of knife making. making. Uh, really, there the the resurgence of kind of handcrafted, hand forged knives kind of started back in the seventies, um, and it was a, it stemmed off from um, I think it was the Custom Knife Making Association, or uh, yeah, Custom Knife Makers Association, and then it stemmed off to the ABS, which is the American Bladesmith Society, and that was all about the forge blade and kind of the mission to retain that knowledge and that history and, and the skills that go into actually taking a piece of metal and forging a blade out of it. Like, your blades, they were forged to shape. They were, uh, one pr approach is to just take a, a bar of steel, mm -hmm. trace out a line, cut that out. Right. It's stock It's totally valid way of doing it um forging the forging aspect uh especially if somebody doesn't actually know what they're doing they're just like heating up a piece of steel they don't know how fucking hot it is getting they don't know how when to stop hitting it they may be hitting it too cold they may be overheating it and hitting it while it's way too hot uh, they could really actually do detrimental damage to the to the material and turn out a piece of shit right um so the forged aspect really just brings kind of an aesthetic and kind of a depth of story to help bring kind of more to that product. Well, it's another um, level, right? Yeah, of it's just another layer of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not just handcrafting something from a you know just a piece of metal that you bought and you put all right. the pieces together and polished it down and right. sanded it. When did you get into this? So I. <laughs> It's a kind of a funny story. So I got into this back in 2008 is when I f uh, met Bob Kramer. At the time, I was working in a restaurant, uh, actually in my hometown of Olympia. Um, and I was working in a restaurant. I was moonlighting as an assistant salsa dancing instructor and doing like <laughs> uh, uh, like community performances and shit like that. And uh, I was 24, and I didn't know what the hell I was doing with myself, and I didn't really have much of a direction in my life. I was terrible at school. Um, you know, I had maybe 40 credits towards towards an AA, but I don't even have like an actual certification or degree or any kind. So anyways, I was I was sharing this with my dance partner and she had just started working for this guy who was a knife maker. And she's like, oh, you should meet him. He's really interesting. Uh, you know, you kind of feel like you're lost. He's been all over the world. He's even like, he was even a clown at one point. And this for is Bob Ring Kramer? Yeah. He used to be a clown? He was a clown, f I think, for a year for Ringling Barnum Bla Bailey. <laughs> um, and 
from what I understand, it was a great experience and he loved it. And, uh, but anyways, she's like, you know, I think you guys would hit it off. I think, you know, maybe he could help bestow some wisdom as to where you're at and where he was at and maybe what kind of choices or options you have ahead of you. And so I met up with him, uh, at the brew pub that I was actually working at and got some beers, got some fish and chips, sitting bullshitting, and it ended up turning into a job opportunity. Neither of us really went into it knowing that that's the direction it was going to go. But uh, he was anticipating, he had a, an article coming out in The New Yorker, like, in a month. Um, that was going to really, like, blow his shit up. And he had had a couple big articles, like, in Savoir magazine, and he was featured in uh, Cook's Illustrated at one point. And each time, like, there's a huge influx. And so I think in, in part of anticipation for that, he was like, look, you seem like a nice guy. You don't really seem to have a direction. Maybe we could work something out. I can't make any promises to you that I have full-time work for you. Um, so he just took you on as an apprentice. Essentially. I saw a video with him yeah, with yeah. Anthony Bourdain. That's yeah. how I found out about him. He was making a knife with meteors, right? with a piece of meteorite in it as mm -hmm. well. Same kind of thing. And uh, I remember thinking, like, wow, how crazy is this? This guy's hammering this thing together and putting that that was like one of the ways that i got interested in custom knife making sure and man i'd always had knives you know like pocket knives you know that right. and i always like kind of thought they were cool and enjoyed them yeah but until i watched that video i i didn't realize that there was a lot of people out there there it is yeah him and uh, anthony i didn't realize there was a lot of people that are out there doing this from scratch and then, you know, then I was like, oh, I got to get a knife. And then, <laughs> then I saw your page on Instagram. And I remember thinking, wow, this guy does some wild shit. And I don't remember how you and I got to chatting. I don't remember. I just remember seeing your stuff on Instagram. You, you reached out to me uh, on email, and I was like, Joe Rogan. I was like, that can't be. Was it be, an email or was it a yeah, yeah. Instagram message? Oh, actually. I Not sure. Know. I think it was an email. Email? Either Probably way. Probably from your website. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Oh, you had seen my email in one of the previous conversations oh, okay. somewhere. But I was like, this can't be like the Joe Rogan. <laughs> and then as the conversation continued on, and I was like, because also your picture for the emails, like this goofy picture of you doing like kissy face or something like that. It's fucking hilarious. <laughs> that and, sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, holy shit, I think this actually might be Joe Rogan. This is crazy. Um, and But it's doing this craft and doing this work and, and finding and connecting with people who have an appreciation for the actual, like the actual work that goes into it and appreciating that value uh, has been, you know, I ne like even five years ago when I first started under my own brand, there's no way I would have thought I'd be sitting here hanging out with you guys. It was kind of a been a crazy ride for me well it's a crazy ride for me too man all of it is life's crazy i believe that but like i said i i've always had a, a, a deep appreciation for artisans you know for for art what I, I think this i think your knife making is art i mean i, I really do like look at this is jamie's pulled up an image from your website that shows this incredible blade design. Now, this is what I've always wanted to know. Like, is that Damascus steel? Is that what that is? That is Damascus. And this, just a quick note, this is actually uh, a, a post that I did to celebrate another maker. His name's Julian. You can actually kind of see it there on the right margin. Now, the... But the, he's a South American kid. The he's blades, like 20. The blades that you made that you have here today that you had that you're bringing with you for oh, an yeah. auction... Those the patterns on those things are fucking insane. Yeah. How do you do that? Like, how do you make 
these because it's not just steel for people that are just listening to this like that one is a great example right i would really love um for people who are just listening to just please go uh, spell out, go, go sp- spread out, go back to the uh, page, Jamie, so I could see the headline. Shrink, <laughs> it's stuck? What do you mean? You can't shrink it? I got zoomed in and it won't zoom out. Mm. <clears throat> Hold on. What happened? I don't know. I did it with the touchpad. What did you? Oh, the touchpad. Uh, These goddamn, we got an old ass <laughs> laptop there. Um, M A U M A S Fire Arts. M A S I. S I. M A U. M-A-S-I, Fire Arts. Malmasi Fire Arts. Don't get stuck again. M-A-U, oh, it's stuck. <laughs> M-A-U-M-A-S-I, Fire Arts. Uh, if you go there, that's his page. You'll be able to check it out and order books are closed. You're fucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah back just, order. yeah I, I'm, uh, I'm at three years right now and I just kind of like, I had to shut it down because it's, Kind of at a at a overwhelming point. Yeah, it, like it's a good problem, but it's overwhelming because it's a fucking I can one only man imagine. show. Yeah, yeah, and balancing doing the work with now the you know like the marketing and branding, mm-hmm. maintaining relevance through social media, and taking the time to create content on top of all of that. It, I mean, especially when you're first starting to do it, uh, the content part side of it, it fucking t- time consuming. That's a crazy like long waiting list, man. Three years. Yeah. And realistic, uh, it's actually, in the, at least in the knife-making world, it's not uncommon for people to actually wait longer than that. It's the same thing with um, the pool cue world. Right? It's the exact same thing. Okay. Mo- a lot of these uh, famous pool cue manufacturers like Southwest or Sugar Tree, I mean, they have 10-year waiting lists. And it's just because they do it right. It takes a long time. Everything's done by hand. Right. They're highly sought after. And because of that, like you could buy a pool cue from uh, you know a company that makes them through you know computerized process, and sure. they're fine. They play really good, just like a knife that you'd buy from a store that's right. c- you know made by a machine and it's all done mass manufacturing. It'll cut your meat. It, it works great. Yeah, it gets the job done, but yeah. it doesn't feel it's the not same. The same thing. It doesn't feel. It's crazy. Like you can feel the difference. Yeah. Between a handmade thing and a machine-made thing. Yeah. It's it's bizarre. It trips me out every time. Well, there's a little something that people leave in things that they make. I mean, there really is. I mean, I, I think it exists in everything that people make, whether it's clothing or jewelry or furniture or anything. I mean, I think there's a little something that people leave when they in in a thing that they make. What it, there's something you talk about sometimes about how animals inherit, like, uh, passed down through genes, like, watch out for this plant or watch out for these mm-hmm. predators and shit like that. Like passing something on like that kind of in a way, like where I'm toiling over something like that for, you know, 40 dedicated solid fucking hours. Right. Like making sure it's as perfect as I possibly can make that thing at this point in my life mm-hmm. with the skills I got. And I, I think there's something to that. I mean, I, even if it's just a thought, even if you just know when you touch it, like if I touch this knife, I know that you made this. You know, when I'm when I'm cutting something with this and I'm cooking, I know that you made this. So maybe it's just, even if it's only in my head, it's still, it just feels different. You know, and I, 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 I don't know. I mean, there's there's Rupert Sheldrake, who's a, I don't know what exactly kind of scientist he is, but he has this bizarre theory, and he's a really interesting guy to talk to. So I would never discount it. He thinks that everything has memory. 
right. thinks you just you just can't access that memory, but he thinks there's things that have memories. And he thinks that our idea that memory is something that only animals and humans possess is is just it's probably not true. And that that's probably one of the reasons why people don't want to buy a house where someone was murdered. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> like the idea is that a haunted Jeez. house even if it's not really a ghost, like maybe that home has memories. Yeah. You know, maybe you have, like my dad went to Gettysburg and uh, he's not woo woo at all. Sure. He's like as fucking straight laced across the board. No bullshit as it gets. And he said, man, you could feel sadness there. He goes, you just think of how many thousands of people died at Gettysburg. And he said, when you're there, it's just it feels sad. Like you feel death yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if that's real or if it's maybe the knowledge that you have that there was a war there. I mean, I don't know. I I used to do this thing where I would walk through cemeteries, hmm. um, just interested, like looking at people's names and right. and like when when did they live and what did people have to say about them or what you know what's left behind, and just walking through cemeteries. Like sometimes I would even do it on Halloween to try to trip my ass out, <laughs> and it's it's definitely feels weird in there yeah. when when you're there. It does. I used to run through cemeteries. I used to run through them because uh, I would uh, I would want to be reminded that life is short. Get something done. Make that, something happen. Yeah. With all these people that aren't here anymore. But the thing about cemeteries is like they're already dead when they get in there. Right. I think like the memory okay. thing is like, you know, if you're on a boat and someone gets murdered on that boat and you're in the boat and you're like fucking freaking out. Like, right, Ooh. right. <laughs> 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 There's something about... Like things, like if you had a thing, if you had a, a wallet that Mike Tyson owned, you know what I mean? <laughs> You'd hold it. You're like, damn. You know, there's something to it. Morphic resonance. Okay, that's Rupert Sheldrake's okay. uh, theory. Uh, according to a theory developed by Rupert Sheldrake, British biologist, uh, paranormal influence by which a pattern of events or behavior can facilitate subsequent occurrences of similar patterns. Oh, that's right. That is um, That is not about it memory that is that is his other theory it's referred to in a lot of other ways mm. about memory is inherent in nature and yeah yeah i think that's part of it like i think what i was talking about is part of his theory of morphic resonance but morphic resonance i think he's he yeah it's here it says that hold on scroll back scroll down so the process whereby self-organizing systems inherit a memory from previous similar systems so what he was talking about with morphic resonance was um how mice if they learn, um, like say if you have a pattern and there's like cheese at the end of this pattern and then mm. they go through a maze, if one mouse figures out that pattern, other mouse can figure it out quicker. And there's something, somehow or another, they learn from each other. Right. And when uh, chimpanzees are observed using tools, other chimpanzees on the other side of the world started mimicking that behavior without any interaction with those chimpanzees at all. Wait, yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. Very strange. That's like fucking butterfly effects shit well, right there. Well, it's more intense than butterfly effect because it implies that there's some sort of collective information pool that they're sharing um, through the ether. That there's some something that they, they're sharing through some unknown method. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, it's, been a pr it's, it's actually been shown that there is some sort of a there, – there's something to this. And – there's a lot of criticism of it. So True. if you're one of those people right now that's like a strict materialist and you're screaming out, <laughs> I get it. 
I get it. Someone who's a real rationalist who just wants only science, provable. The thing is, it is kind of provable because there's, there, is, there has been some tests and there's fierce opposition to this, which is anything that has like some woo-woo attached to it is going to sure. have some fierce opposition. But Rupert was a really fascinating guy. And he's also a rare scientist that's he, – he, he, was, he was Christian. Is that what it was? He's really into – he has a certain level of Christianity that he uh, accepts and adopts because he feels like it's beneficial to him. Very interesting guy. Yeah, that's – Yeah, I did a podcast with him a few years back. Yeah. He's a trip. Him and um, – uh, there was a mathematician and Terrence McKenna. Who was the other gentleman? They were. The, it was the trialogues. They had these fantastic recordings. It was Sheldrake, McKenna, and one other guy it was also brilliant. And they would go back and forth. They had these. Um, Ralph, Ralph, Ralph Abraham. Abraham. Abrams or Abraham. 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 And they um, they did these series of talks. And uh, this is one of the things that came up. Like McKenna was the most woo woo, Ralph Abraham was the least woo woo, and Sheldrick was kind of in the middle. Right. Yeah. Interesting stuff. If you ever yeah for sure hanging around yeah the trialogues there it is. The the recordings are still available somewhere. I think um, our friend uh, Psychedelic Salon. I think Lorenzo has them. Are they available online? Oh, there you go. Oh, Bam. SoundCloud. Yeah, they're fucking cool, man. You can't actually play it. I don't know why. You can't play it? I don't know. Um, hmm. Maybe it was there and I got to take it down. Oh, that, yeah, that is the case. It looks like I got it removed. Mm. Yeah, Maybe someone's it probably selling it. Yeah. It's really cool, though. They're, you know, you get to see these guys in the 1990s pre-internet. Was it pre-internet? Might not have been. It might be like 98. I think McKenna died around 2000-ish. He died post to. I want to say he died like 2003 or something. When did he die? Why am I asking this? <laughs> this is all about memory and things. This is, we went on the fucking deep road off into the <laughs> woods here. But uh, anybody who's listening. 2000, 2000. 2000. Yeah. So he made it to Y2K and then he kicked the bucket. Um, anybody who's uh, just interested in really cool conversations, it's something to listen to. Yeah. yeah. That sounds very interesting. Yeah, just three super smart dudes kind of debating ideas and bouncing them around off each other. You know what I've actually gotten into recently is listening to uh, old recordings of, like, uh, Alan Watts. Oh, yeah. Like oh, he was great. Reading Joseph Campbell and yeah. just, like, yeah, I don't know, just absorbing it and mm-hmm. trying to figure out what that means to me today mm-hmm. in this, like, this very different journey. world. Yeah. yeah, Watts is a fascinating guy. Plus, that accent made him sound so much cooler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His actually the first time I ever got into a good uh like a, a like a meditative space was a meditation led by Alan Watts from like I don't know when the fuck it like 60s 70s. Mm. And just the way he explained it for me like it was the first time it ever made sense how meditation should he's like don't try to not think of anything but just accept them that they're there and but mm-hmm. also ignore them at the same time I, yeah it was weird and then i just totally like i felt like i was above myself watching me 
just sitting there listening to this recording. It was a trip. Well, he was such a heady guy. That the sound of his voice and just hearing his thoughts. When you when you hear a really deep thinker like him, one of the things that it does is it kind of gets you into that pattern of thought, and you realize like, oh, I can probably kind of sort of think that way too. I just allow myself to be guided by his words and sort of try to pay attention to how he's doing this. Yeah. He's um he was an interesting guy because not just was he a deep thinker but his the the influences of those people it's it's very different. Like there's very few recordings even back then for them to listen to. You know, this stuff was based on reading um and their education and their actual life experiences. So they were very unique and original. They were really the cornerstones for a lot of these deep philosophical ideas. You know, and so then when you hear an Alan Watts recording today, you know, maybe someone like me or some other people that listen to that, they might might uh, share those ideas or reflect on those ideas. But clearly, these are not my ideas. These are ideas that have come from these intense cornerstone people, whether it's McKenna or Alan mm -hmm. Watts or something like that. Do you get a chance while you're when you're working? Do you listen to shit or do you just? Yeah, I got all the time to do sit. You and listen. Headphones or like because yeah. it seems like it would be loud as fuck. Yeah, so I just got a hold of these uh, like Bluetooth head head you know, like earbuds, mm -hmm. and they have like this memory phone. So they uh, memory foam earbud like tips, so that helps reduce the amount of noise that's actually coming in. So it helps protect in that way, just kind of in general, like a normal like. Uh, in, inner earplug would work, but also because it's reducing the amount of noise that's getting in, you can also listen at a lower volume, so you're not like blowing out your ears to be able to hear mm. whatever you're listening to, like right. you wouldn't through normal earbuds. Right, because um, it's so loud in your shop. Yeah, yeah, so much noise. It's whenever I'm working, like especially if somebody happens to pop by the shop and they want to see, and like they're just curious, and so we have stuff going on, or we can heat some steel up real quick and do a quick demonstration. Usually, I don't take the time to throw all that stuff in. And fuck, it is so loud. I actually feel like my hearing has become more sensitive since I started making knives than it was before. Um, it's probably your ears getting beat up. Well, no, Do you always I, have earplugs in? I always have he hearing protection in, so, mm. so my hearing is always protected. So I feel like it's become more sensitive. Uh. I have a better sense of hearing. I don't know if that's possible to get your hearing back or whatever, but... Uh, Maybe you're protecting it. It's doing better because of that. Yeah. I just, I hear a lot of things, like all the things it feels like whenever I take my hearing, or your hearing protection out, I'll be at home or something and I'll be like, what the fuck's that noise? And my wife looks at me like I'm fucking crazy. I'm just like, I wonder no, if no, that's no. the case. I wonder if like, maybe if like, you know, people don't use their hands and then the hands get soft. I don't know. Maybe I have don't pretty use soft. I know you can't gain it back. Okay. But you might be protecting it longer. And okay. since you mm. have a sensitivity issue, maybe since it's quieter all day. So if you blow it out from like concerts and shit like that, that's it? That's all that was like, all you can do is get a hearing aid. Oh, yeah. What about like, um, the little hairs like that stem pick up cells the or some shit? Yeah. Have they done, I don't figured out a way to do that yet? Because it it's literally what you're hearing with is a, like a hair follicle. It's, right. it's vibrating. It's, yeah. And, it's, and you, you blow to, that shit out. They haven't synthetically made those yet or hairs are regrown yet. I feel so bad for those old rock stars that didn't know any better. And now they, they're just fucking beep. Huey Lewis, it just oh, happened Jesus. to him. He Huey Lewis? He can't play anymore. All of a sudden. That's the Lord's work. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding, Huey. Tip to be square. Um, yeah, man, it's fucked up. Like the dude from uh, ACDC. Who else? Angus Young. Yeah. yeah, Angus is gone. Oh, Jesus, really? Deaf, yeah. Fucking everybody's going deaf. 
Yeah. They also probably didn't protect themselves Mm-mm. like you should have. Nobody like knew any better back then. Have you ever seen that documentary? It's an older one. Well, older one. It was like from the early 2000s. But this woman, she uh, progressively got deafer and deafer as she grew older mm. until like I think she in high school or something. Like she was like practically completely deaf. But she's a percussionist. And she's like a world-renowned percussionist. There's this uh, awesome documentary. It's called uh, Touch the Sound. And she hears through her body, which is a it trips me out, but the tones that she's able to achieve, the control she has over everything, whatever kind of instrument she's playing, it's it's an awesome documentary. Wow. But she has almost literally no hearing. She hears everything through her body. Dude. So it's kind of interesting to think, like, if Angus could figure that shit out, then, I mean, he's holding the fucking thing in his hand the whole time. He's standing you, it's in front not just of, Angus, the lead singer. Right, right, right. Who's the lead, what's the lead singer's name? Fuck's his name. Second lead singer. Brian Johnson. Brian Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> I never forget that. He's gone deaf, too. Angus and Brian. And, and Angus is, like, always headbanging. What kind of CTE does that guy have? Oh, Jesus. I mean, fucking Christ. You shouldn't be doing that. God, you were talking to DDP <laughs> about that the other day. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was thinking like all through high school, like I played football from seventh grade all through high school and like all the stuff they're learning now. I'm just like, Jesus, what the fuck was happening to me? Dude, CTE is no We always led with our head. Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah. My neck was always all kinds of fucked up. And, and, you know, I definitely had some serious concussions. (laughs) I'm sure. And yeah, Uh, sometimes it scares me and worries me a little bit. Like, what does that mean for you now? How old are you now? 34. Yeah, man. Just turned 34. Um, it's scary. You know, you're lucky you stopped when you did. I know uh, I know a lot of people with brain damage. Me, too. I, I'm sure I have some. I guarantee it. I must. I mean, I don't think anybody rides for free. I think you get hit in the head enough, you got some brain damage. You know, I got hit in the head on a regular basis for m- most most of my younger years, from like 15 to like 22, yeah. I got hit in the head all the time. It's just, you, nobody knew any better. You know, and back then, you thought that like once you got, like once you were slurring your words and stuff, <laughs> if you just stopped, like, oh, he's a little punchy, he should stop. Right. Like that's how people thought. But they didn't realize that it's regressive. And then like you, you don't even really show brain damage like 10 years after the in, initial injuries. Right. That's when you really start showing damage. So some, some CTE just compounds it until it just becomes unmanageable for these poor people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, I actually, I can't, especially after watching Concussion and, and seeing mm. and reading like articles about the real life people that this shit's happened to, I like, I have a hard time watching football. Like I used to watch football all the time. I, I, I've never been like crazy into sports knowing all the stats and every stuff. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed watching like a good contest. I never really rooted for anybody. But now when I see like even kids signing to the draft or signing up from high school to go to a certain college, I'm like, man, that's somebody's fucking baby. Yeah. They're just fucking tearing themselves up. Like, is that worth it? Yeah. Is I've, that worth it? I, I, I would like, support it, kids fighting way before I would support kids um, doing football. and Both of them I'd be nervous about. And, you know, I mean, there's other stuff like X Games type shit, people that are into extreme sports and, you know, people that are into snowboarding. Snowboarders wipe out all the time and mm-hmm. crack their head open. Can you, can you get a scholarship 
in martial arts of any kind, like to college, so. just wrestling. I mean, that's like a big that's a big driver right there, though. Right, wrestling. Well, that's where the money. Wrestling is at, certainly right? a martial art. Yeah. It's probably one of the most important martial arts. But other than just, that, that's probably it, right? Yeah, that's it. I mean, judo. Maybe is there a school that has judo? They used to have boxing in schools. I mean, back in like fifties and sixties and shit, there was b- boxing was uh, a legitimate sport in college, but not anymore. Yeah. 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 It just. I can't really watch it anymore. I mean, you have to be careful, like with your hand-eye coordination and your fingers and shit. Now, oh Jesus, you know. Yeah. I mean, you you got to think like you, when you're working with hammers and hot metal, and you you must always have to be Grinders. super because everybody that works yeah, in yeah. machine shops missing a fingertip or <laughs> something's fucked up. There's you know? crazy stories too, like buffer the buffer, like the oh. fluffy little things, like yeah. one of the most dangerous things because it catches an edge. Oh, just yeah. like if you're snowboarding, you catch a bad edge, and, just and it it bites the blade bites into that, and it acts as a hand. And just rips it and flings it wherever. Oh, it's Jesus thrown knives Christ. right back into guys and fucking killed them. Oh fuck, yeah. man. My, my wife probably hating me saying that right yeah. now. Yeah, <laughs> well, but it, this yeah. is reality. I've done. I've actually done a lot of work to get away <laughs> from using buffers because of that, and I'm still like doing great work. I just, I have a lot of friends who just they'll never touch a fucking buffer because wow. it's just terrifying. It's scary. What does a buffer it look like for people who don't a know? Put up like what? What would you call it? In the machine? Uh, like a a buffing. Oh, shit, I don't know. Like, it, usually it's like one? a usually it's like a, a bench top thing, like a bench grinder. Usually it has like a, the hard wheat round stone wheel on one side. Is that that's, it? That's it right there. Oh, those motherfuckers. Yeah. That's, oh, that, don't. It's not one fucking. No, just no, gonna no, kick. It's just gonna go. It's not a. <sighs> make me nervous. Yeah, <laughs> that, <laughs> that looks like something. So if you fucked up and you got that blade too close, it yeah. would kick it and then. And so. It. That one is is what's called a sizal wheel, so it's it's made from a th- that type of rope. But the the ones that are the most dangerous are the softer cotton wheels because mm. they want to grab Clean. that much easier. They have more give. Um, but yeah, it's and what's interesting is I've actually been cut less working in a in a metal shop than I ever did working in, a, in and and burned less than I ever did working in in kitchens. I worked in restaurants back a house like for seven years collectively and most of that has to do with other people not calling like hot coming across and right. fucking i turn around they don't call it i right. turn around they're there with this fucking saute pan right in the side of my arm and i'm ready to fucking drop it fucking right down. but it's being in a metal shop like you said you do have to pay so much attention you have to be focused at what you're doing because literally everything in that fucking shop wants to hurt you or kill you the second you're not paying attention because mm. the second you're not paying attention it's going to grab you like there are horror stories of people working next to machines and they have long hair it's ah. caught in a motor and it just fucking rips it scalps and like just Woo. straight ooh, terrible stuff UFC terrible fighter stuff. and the power tool last week oh yeah he got a power tool stuck in his balls uh, who was that don't remember his name. Just... yeah poor bastard <laughs> Yeah, I got a uh, Brian Wilson. Yeah, got a drill that uh, he lost his hearing due to not pl- putting in earplugs at a car race, not music. Mm. <clears throat> Specifically, he there was a quote. Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys. Uh, Brian Wilson from the Beach Boy, or I'm sorry, he this article has him at the top. Brian Johnson. Believes. Oh, Brian Johnson yeah, yeah. from Cars. Yeah. Well, how the fuck does he know? 
That's Motherfuckers in ACDC. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you think that would be loud too, bro? <laughs> uh, Angus Young says that he lost a little bit, but he's, his quote says that he never really had a problem with it because that's why he was running around on stage so much too. He's never in one, one place so from, long. Like, yeah, yeah. What? I don't so know, just the fucking silly. loudness of the room. <clears throat> silly, but. That's hilarious. First I concert if, I ever saw on ACDC. ACDC? Yeah. I wonder if people are more susceptible, just like some people are more susceptible to CTE. Yeah, remember Rhonda Patrick was talking about certain genes that you have. What is it? Apropos, I forget what it was called, but whatever genes that make you more susceptible and more likely to get CTE from concussions. Probably. Yeah. So probably have to be something. That, probably. Yeah, for sure. Makes sense. Now, when you're in that shop and yep. you're 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 doing all this grinding, is there any concern about chemicals? Like, is there chemical ingestion or smells in the air or anything like that? Because you're you're dipping things and you got all this stuff that you're using. Yeah, especially if you're working with synthetic. I mean, any any material that you're grinding, um, you're making it. It's airborne. Like any of it can go into your lungs. Mm -hmm. I'm almost always wearing a respirator. Oh wow. Um, Especially when I'm grinding, um, and it's like double can, always like covering up. My Does it face work? Like, Does a respirator yeah. filter out it, all of it? It makes a huge difference. In fact, excuse me, where I have my facial hair right now, even this little bit, what you got, even that little bit, is enough to create a little gap, and it can get through that. So you have to shave your face smooth. Yeah, usually I keep it pretty well. Now, um, down, how but. the fuck do you create those patterns? Like Damascus steel? <laughs> what What is that? Oh, this doesn't have too much of that a pattern. That one's not the uh, Damascus steel, unfortunately. Yeah, it's um, beautiful, though. Yeah. Now, what what does create those? Like that. There you go. How do you do that? We're looking at a crazy image that looks like, it almost looks like someone drew on it. <laughs> this is uh, this is a pattern I just came up with recently. It's called, I call it the braid mosaic, for lack of a better term. Um, but it just looks like a braid, and it's something I've been wanting to create, and, How and do you I create finally it? figured it out. So essentially, what, to create pattern-welded Damascus, uh, first off, Damascus is kind of a blanket, has become a blanket term. Traditionally and originally, it actually referred to the steel that, like the type of steel that your knife, this knife, the meteorite knife, is made from. And it eventually became a blanket term for all kinds of kind of patterned steel in general, whether it's it, it curls naturally or if it's kind of forced and created the way that braid pattern was made. Um, so that's pattern welded steel. And so you have to start with at least two uh, different types of high carbon steel. Ideally, s steels that heat treat in a similar range. When you heat them up and squish on them, they, f they move at a similar rate. And so uh, most commonly people are working with 1080 and 15 and 20. Those are just codes for two different types of high carbon steel. But essentially you bring them up to high temperature, you, uh, you squish them uh, either under a big hammer or under a press. You can even actually do it by hand, but you have to do kind of a smaller billet. Uh, to create the patterns and get it to stick, because the trick is really getting um, getting them close, even evenly squishing it out. And it's like um, if you've ever like rolled out dough or anybody who's ever made like pastry dough, like you would use in a croissant. Mm -hmm. You tear open a croissant, you see all those layers in there, and that's from a piece of dough being rolled out, folded out, rolled out. And so it's kind of the same fucking thing, mm. but with metal. But you have to have the kind of uh, the right kind of temperature environment, kind of uh, you you want as little oxygen in there as possible because the o oxygen creates carbon um, 
or not carbon, but iron oxide that help uh, kind of is detrimental to creating solid weld bonds. And there are different ways to achieve that. But um, once the 1080 is the black steel, the black color, and the 15 and 20 is the is the silver color. And what's the difference in the way those steels perform? Is one so, of them harder or more durable? Or so they pretty much an edge more. They pretty much form almost or perform almost exactly the same. They're, they're in, in fact, chemically speaking, they're almost exactly the same, except for the 15 and 20 uh, has a high level of nickel in it, 0.2% by volume or by weight. And so that steel is traditionally used in saw blades, especially large, big uh, mill bandsaws. Um, you know, like in Oregon, they're like one of the oldest and continuously running uh, wood saw mill is still there and doing its thing. With these giant bandsaw blades that are like 30 feet in di- or, uh, mm. in circumference, and they're like foot wide, and they're just monsters. And um, foot wide? You mean like thick? No, no, no. Like they're only like maybe a sixteenth of an inch thick because oh, you want a narrow right. saw curve so to you're not wasting material. Right. But they're wide to help oh, prevent okay. deflection to oh, keep it I from see. kind of so twisting. So it's a bandsaw. I'm thinking of a circular saw for some reason. Sorry, yeah, bandsaw. This is my but, idea. So the circular Sorry. saw. Uh, those saw curves are usually probably around uh, eighth of an inch to a quarter of an inch thick. But it's mm. the same kind of idea. Is that they're they're trimming down these giant logs, so they right. need a big fucking saw. Those whether things it's bind and break, man. That must be a fucking nightmare. Yeah. That's got to be so You terrible. don't want to be standing right there when that Have happens. Have you seen an original samurai sword? I've seen a few, actually. This one's from the 1500s. Check this shit out. Yeah, let's see it. Oh, shit. This is the one that uh, yeah. Mr. Neil deGrasse Tyson was yeah. posing with the other day. Yeah. That's a real one. <clears throat> That's an Dude. actual real samurai sword. Right, right. From the 1500s. Yeah, see the ray skins, nice. Yeah. Do you know when it was made exactly? I don't think they know. They just okay. know it's from some time period in the 1500s. But sure, there's sure, sure. a certificate of authentication that came with it that explains. I'm just looking to see what the homone activity What's looks that like. Mean? So the homone is. Uh, you can kind of see this line that runs parallel to the cutting edge, and that usually indicates where the soft material stops and the hard material starts. Um, and so the idea with these kind of, uh, the challenge with any knife is making a knife that takes and holds a sharp edge right. for a good period of time. Um, and what's the key to that? But is also tough, which means like mm. you can drop it. And it's right. not going to break. So, like, if you wanted a hunting knife or something like that. So, uh, a hunting knife, it's a bush knife, a bowie knife. Those are harder working knives. So, you want to actually bring that hardness down. You don't have to bring it down a ton. Um, but just a few points will make a huge fucking difference like in how it performs. Here. Yeah, exactly. Like, what's the difference in the way that knife is made and this knife is so made? So, they were tempered. They were heat treated the same. So, mm-hmm. they were... Brought up to uh, like fifteen hundred degrees. For people who don't not listen or listening, not watching, this one of these knives is a hunting knife. That uh, how's that feel, by the way? It's great, man. Comfortable. I love it. Yeah, nice. Um, but it's uh, it's made very similarly. If you look into the um, the video of it, the handle's the same, and it looks it looks very similar. It has a, a different knife guard, though. It's pretty cool. Hold up, what's higher? What's that? Yeah. Yeah, the guard keeps you 
keeps your hand from sliding up. Yeah, and I like the way you made the handle too. It's an interesting handle, curved and everything. Yeah. Where, the, where'd you get that pattern for like the so, handle? Yeah. So the, the I'm sorry. First, answer the first question. I'm sorry. I don't remember I what the you. first the, question. Like, what is the difference in the way they're treated? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they were hardened. So the heat treating the whole process is essentially heating up the steel, make it hard, and then you put it back. To, into heat, but a low, much lower temperature to kind of toughen it up. Mm. Um, and so you're pulling some of that hardness back. So they were hardened the same way, but they were tempered at different temperatures because one is a hard use knife while the chef's knife is not a hard use what knife. What is the difference between uh, temper and what, like, what does that mean? So the tempering, uh, so essentially, so I harden it. So I bring it up to 1500 degrees, uh, which is like a, a, a dull glowing orange color. Uh, and then I dip it in a special oil that I have that's designed for quenching materials, not just in knife making, but all kinds of different uh, industrial applications. Quenching materials. Quench, or oil, sorry, quenching oil. What does that mean? So that's cooling the this hot steel down in a very short period of time. And you do it in it. oil. So yeah. is it a cold oil? No. So actually, the, depending on how the steel needs to be heat treated, uh, you actually want to heat up the oil. So that it's uh, it's thinner, mm. and it also there's this thing that's called a, a vapor jacket. So if you've ever like been next to a wood burning stove and you s- drop a little water on it, and you see that bead water dance around on there, the same thing happens on the surface of the blade. Except for the blade is the source of the heat, right? You put it in that oil, all that oil is dancing around on it. So when the th- the oil's thinner, uh, it it's not as large of a jacket because when that jacket is large, so jack in, encasing that steel while it's trying to cool down, um, it actually kind of acts as an insulator and ruin or c- could potentially ruin. So not only do you put it in the oil, but you want to agitate it to kind of break up that jacket um, so it doesn't get a chance to just sit there and all the way around the blade. And if it was cold, it would it would it would be thicker and so. Um, it would make a larger jacket, actually. And also, the, it probably wouldn't be as uh, efficient, I guess, in cooling the steel down. Because ideally, like for most steels, you want to cool them down pretty much as quickly as you possibly can. So this you have knife... A, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. So we keep going. I was just going to say, you, you essentially have, uh, depending on what kind of steel you're working with, you have anywhere from half a second to uh, like five seconds to get it from 1,500 degrees or sometimes higher, to below 800 degrees. And th- so this knife would be more durable, is that what it is, than this knife? Durable, yeah, tougher. So in, in knife making, commonly refer to it as being tougher. So it can withstand coming into impact with bone. You could chop with that thing uh, mm. a lot more efficiently with a tougher knife. Because this hasn't been tempered at a, as at, as high of a, a temperature, um, it's it's much harder than this one. Even though it's a few points, those few points make a big difference. And so if you were to take this out into the woods, try to do the same job as this one, to snap. the cutting, it wouldn't necessarily snap, uh, but parts of the cutting edge would uh, up. blow out, probably blow out in chips. Um, I actually recently just, from time to time, it's good practice as a knife maker to make sure you, that you're still doing your thing, every, your heat treating stuff all right, I took a knife and I just beat the shit out of it. First, I chopped through some wood, and then I actually took it to an antler and beat the shit out of it too. Mm. And um, it's, it is amazing that if you're doing things right, 
you know, ten thousandths of an inch is enough to really to withstand impact of chopping through wood pretty well. Of course, unless you're coming into contact with like a nail, super yeah, a nail or super dense knots. That's crazy but, because it's so thin. You right, know, that's one of the more interesting. And that's things actually on the thicker this. side. This is on the thicker side, uh, at least, especially along the cutting edge. That's probably wow. twice as thick as it actually needs to be. Wow, which is crazy, but it just it comes down to the material. Mm-hmm. Not everybody or a lot of people mistakenly think you know steel is steel is steel is steel and whatever, but they're not. Steel is made for many different applications and they're actually very specifically designed for those applications so uh like a structural steel this kind of stuff that you know buildings are built out of Mm -hmm. very different from this it doesn't have very much carbon in it at all that way so uh and the carbon is what helps make these really hard so lacking that carbon it it allows it to be way tougher so you can bend it all fucking day long it's not gonna snap Exactly. Right. So that's why you want it for buildings in L.A. where the earthquakes hit. Yeah. And they wiggle a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is much thinner than a lot of other uh, hunting knives would be, which is interesting. You know, with, with your use of this exotic metal and yeah. your, your methods, you're able to do that. Well, and also part of the reason that you're able to do that is because it's high carbon steel, It has a, which means it has a a high a volume of carbon comparatively uh, than other kind of, kinds of tool or cutlery steel. And what's it's, the benefit of high carbon versus less it, carbon? Uh, so high carbon allows you to, to um, especially for the, the meteorite steel, it's, it's a kind of crucible steel called woots. And so the patterning you see in there is actually strands of carbon uh, or carbide material. So it, it, all the extra carbon floating around in the matrix, the iron matrix of this steel jumps onto these bands called carbides. And there are different elements and vanadium is one of the elements in this steel that draws those carbon, that carbon in. So what you're seeing are thousands and thousands of all these ultra hard carbon bands floating around through the iron matrix. Do you watch Game of Thrones? I do. When they have like swords that are made out of Valerian steel, do you sure. get pissed off? You know, get the fuck out of here with your fake magic steel. No. <laughs> well, and what's interesting, <laughs> back in the day, this shit was fucking magical. Right. Like they didn't understand what was going on. Now, how did they learn? I mean, what is the history? I mean, obviously, obviously that sword there is from the 1500s, but, you know, from back in the Roman gladiator days. And I mean, how did they understand how to do this? So the steel that they were using in Europe was not really that great. It was Who had the best shit. Japanese, Japanese, Swedish did. were pretty fucking good. Yeah. As well as the Vikings, per- the Persians and the Indonesians Vikings material. Wasn't the greatest. Wasn't too barbaric. No, time to it's, think. it's just, it comes down to uh, what they had available to them. Right. Yeah. So, who was like the pioneer of like really durable, badass sword material? Was it Japanese? So probably, so the Japanese and the Persian slash Indonesian Persians uh, swords are probably the most legendary. Really? You know, they're the ones where like it could cut through silk floating in the air and shit like that. Why is that? What did they do different? So it, it's, it, so the Persian steel is steel very 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 similar to these meteorite so it's a crucible it starts it's 
called a crucible seal. And so essentially there's this clay jar essentially called a crucible. People melt all kinds of stuff in it, but you can melt, melt steel in it as well. And so they were making these ingots of crucible steel and then forging them out. And they really, really very heavily relied on these carbide bands floating through the material because unfortunately they didn't really have a very uh, advanced way of quenching that steel so that not only did they have the bands, but they also had hard iron matrix as well that those bands were floating in. So they really relied on those that banding. So did they just learn from trial and error of thousands of years of experimenting with different materials yeah. and different locations that they got the iron from and different things that they added to it to make steel? Yep, absolutely. And that's why, like, you know, you even watching Game of Thrones or other kind of medieval or movies set in medieval times, you know, there were very specific makers who were the best who could really make this shit happen. And it's just because they had a tradition passed down to them. And, you know, all that, a lot of that stuff was very fictional, but in, in the real world, that, that was the same thing, you know. You had very specific lineages of people who had, the, you know, essentially the most advanced technology and skills and techniques for creating the most highest performing weaponry essentially of the time which was like the currency of the fucking time somebody went to japan fairly <laughs> recently and and filmed them working with a high level sword maker for a television show i'm trying to remember who it was it was someone famous but it was really badass they they went to this sword maker shop and you know i mean he's doing the whole thing like right. hammering it all out and and building the samurai sword from scratch the way it's always been. Yeah, there are a few of those documentaries. Um, do you know what it is, Jeremy? Uh, on YouTube, there you got to do. Some, usually, you got to do a little bit of digging to find them. Um, I I I actually just watched the, a few of them like in the last five years. I do not recall what they're. Do you made. think you're gonna make a samurai sword one of these days? I might do it uh, eventually. Just I mean, I'm always gonna do chef's knives because that's what I know. Like, that's the right. tool I know the most. That's but probably I, the biggest, like, market, right? There, there's a giant, I mean. People are super foodies and yeah. want to let you know. Well, it's not only that, like, but if you think about it, like. Mamasi made this <laughs> made out of a meteor. Mm. A you know, there's a lot of mystique around Japanese swords or even the American Bowie knife mm -hmm. as well as, you know, Viking swords. And, but nowadays, you know, people have that shit made, but. You know, it goes on a wall. The right. things that are really getting used are like a hunting knife and a chef's knife. Yeah. And, you know, cooking knives are, are used like almost literally in every single household around the world every day. Right. Year round. Yeah. And uh, it's what's interesting is because of its ubiquity to our everyday life, it lacks that mystique because we see this shit every day. Mm -hmm. We don't think much of it versus a Japanese sword. People walk in here and they're like, well, I tell you one thing, man. When people come over my house and I'm cooking, and they go, "Where the fuck did you get that knife?" That happens all the time. And when, cool. when I show, it's either this one or the other one. When I show them the bog oak one, the same thing. They're like, "Dude," I'm like, "Yeah, man, check it out." Now, in terms of like this one or the other one that you made me, the other hunting knife that you made sure. me out of Damascus. Yeah. Which one is like tougher and more durable? So they've been heat treated to perform very, very, very similarly. So they basically you'd, the you'd essentially have to destroy them to really determine which one outperformed the so other. So you'd have to stick it in a bone and try to break it. 
Yeah, essentially use it how it's not supposed to be fucking right. used. <laughs> but it it, cut, it keeps an edge so well, man. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, I get nervous every time I touch the blade. I mean, this thing <laughs> slices through things. Yeah. Now, um, there's got to be an art to uh, actually sharpening things too, right? Oh, for sure. And how do you know, like, the right angle to uh, approach sharpening? It's, I mean, there are a lot, there are actually a lot of great information online. Uh, there, are, especially in, in big cities like Seattle, L.A., New York, uh, Austin, there, Portland as well. There are super reputable people, not only who will offer service, but usually offer lessons as well. Mm. I suggest, like, if you can't afford it, you know, you can dig around, you can find the stuff online, but it's not the same as having essentially having a coach next to you saying, uh-uh. Or yeah, that's great. That's perfect. That's where you want to be doing that. Do shit. you do you sharpen both sides? I do. So you sharpen the top and the bottom. I'm sorry. You both mean both sides of the steel? Like, would you sharpen it like this and then flip it over yes. and sharpen it sorry. like that? Yeah. Now, what are those things? And they have those metal things where people go shing 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 shing. Yeah, yeah. So you know, the- those those ones seem like I'm like that looks brutal. I wouldn't do that to a, a good knife. It. So am I right thinking that way? Well, it depends on the the type of steel that your knife's made from, and right. then what the material is that those rods are made from. So those are commonly referred to as sharpening rods or sharpening mm-hmm. sticks. But the reality is they're not actually sharpening. What are they doing? So they're uh, more accurately referred to as honing rods. So what's happening at your oops, sorry at the cutting edge of your knife is you have all these micro serrations. Essentially, if you go uh, Take, take it under a microscope and look at the cutting edge, it looks like a saw blade. Mm. But they're, like, they're fucking microns. A micron is a millionth of a meter. Like, they're teeny tiny. So, but what happens over normal use, uh, those teeth, they, they bend over, they flex over, or sometimes they eventually wear out and fall off. And so what the honing rod does, especially if they've bent there over. It is. He's showing it right there. Woo. Yeah. Exciting. Look at that blade edge. Ooh, ooh. That's yeah, crazy. So you want to ignore like those long streaks, and you're just like the tiny little thin black. Yeah, that's mm. the shit right there. Damn. The, the top of that thin black line. Damn, that's yeah. crazy. Observation. Are you looking at It's like someone's doing it to your instruction, but yeah, it's a YouTube video. Crazy. Yeah, <laughs> that is crazy. I was like, are you doing that shit right now? 300x <laughs> magnification yeah. view from the top. Mm. Yeah. So that's what's happening along your cutting edge. And what happens is those tiny serrations wear bend over, like I was saying, or break off. And so, but as they bend over and it's just normal shit, that honing rod by swiping across that honing rod and you don't just do it willy nilly, like you got to do it at the right angle and all this stuff. But what it does is it realigns and hones those teeth back into alignment. Mm. So people mistakenly call them sharpening sticks because all of a sudden their knife is sharp as fuck afterwards. But the reality is that it's honed those teeth back into alignment so it can do its job again. Now, what's the purpose of the leather strop? So that's just a gentler way, uh, especially for things that are super, super uh, razor sharp, which essentially have been sharpened to a really high finish, uh, like 10,000 grit or Mm -hmm. higher. So those micro serrations are even smaller, which means they're even more delicate, which means they don't need as much force to realign them. So a honing rod or, hon- or sorry, uh, a strop is... So that's a human hair? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus Christ. That looks disgusting. Imagine choking <laughs> on that hair. So just to give you some reference, a, a t- 
typical, an average human hair is about three thousandths of an inch. Whoa. Uh, yeah. And to help put that in a little bit more better perspective, a sixteenth of an inch, like a normal measurement, one sixteenth of an inch is 62.5 thousandths of an inch. Wow. So that's like one, I can't even do the math right, one twentieth of a sixteenth of an inch, which is fucking teeny tiny. Um, it's like split the hair. Yeah. yeah. like shaved it. Yeah. Oh, literally. Yeah. Um, there's a, a big debate in uh, the world of bow hunting with mm-hmm. broadheads with uh, what kind of steel to use. Hmm. And uh, there's, there's harder steel that uh, some people use, but it breaks. And there's, there's an issue with that. And there's, there's like this big debate, harder versus steel that okay. is less hard but will bend more and give slightly more. You know, and then there's, um, there's a, the broadhead that I use, which is a, a carbon steel broadhead from a company called G5. They make this uh, okay. broadhead called a Montec. Let's pull up um, G5 carbon steel Montec. So Mo- you're talking, Montec CS, they call them. So you're talking, it's just the head, like mm-hmm. the, tri- just what, the triangular, or is it even a triangle? for hunting. Okay. Um, the one that I use, yeah, it is. It's, uh, it, it has uh, is that three points or four points. Here, he'll pull it up. You see it. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Oh, yeah. Sure. So it's three points. But that's that's a carbon steel broadhead. Okay. That's what I shot my elk with last year with, and that thing is virtually indestructible. Yeah. There's a, I, I have a crazy so. photograph. I'll show you this crazy video. Oh, I put it up on my Instagram. Find it on my Instagram where um, uh, my <clears throat> I was fucking around with something on my bow at, at full draw. I was trying to set something in the bow. The bow went off and it hit a cement wall, and it stuck into the wall. Like cinder block or solid cement? Solid cement Jesus. wall, and didn't kill the broadhead. I still have okay. the broadhead back there. It stuck yeah. into the broadhead. Look at it did. It stuck into the broadhead. Oh, the shaft. Is yeah. And look what it did to the to the uh, arrow. Now look at that. Yeah. Look at that broadhead. That fucking thing's got my bet for life. Yeah. That thing's got my confidence forever. Because if that does that to concrete, what will that do to bone? Right. You know, that will go through anything. That's going to kick some ass. So the, one of the things I would say after seeing that, especially that first image, is the geometry of the blades, that the actual points. Mm-hmm. Um, they lend themselves similarly to how your hunting knife is sharpened differently from your chef's knife. Mm-hmm. Like the chef's knife material is thinner, but they're also sharpened at different angles because they have different jobs they're supposed to do. And so the broader, essentially, or sorry, the more acute that is, the more easily that will break, as well as the thinner the, thinner the material that, that, that geometry is living on is more uh, susceptible to breaking. That first image that Jamie pulled up, the geometry looked like it was pretty robust. Pull that up again? Yeah. And um, as well as, like, it looks like it's probably at least 30 thousandths of an inch thick, which is, you know, that's about, if not more, actually. No, the, the original image, Jamie, we see the actual broadhead and oh, um, without the, um, um, yeah, my friend Brian Stevens turned me on to these. He... <laughs> He yeah. shot a bear through the head with one of those. Jesus. It was from 10 feet away. It was coming at him. <laughs> and, oh, uh, yeah. Well, I don't blame him. He's got an image of the skull that he sent me where you could see the outline of that sure. broadhead through the bear's skull. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. and, it, and it, it killed the bear and didn't even fuck up the arrow. I'm like, that is it. crazy. Yeah. 
And so a lot of like you see people doing these incredible feats, like hammering through nails and shit like that with their knives. Mm -hmm. And you're like, what the fuck? The thing that most people are used to are a chef's knife, and they think if they did that with their chef's knife, they'd fuck it up. And 100% it pretty much would. But with the right thickness coming up to the cutting edge, as well as the actual lead cutting edge geometry, like the actual angle that it's sharpened at, Mm -hmm. you could do that shit all day long. Now, when you sharpen a blade, do you use something to hold it next to the stone so that it reaches the perfect angle, or do you do it by eye? I do it by eye. I actually, if you'll hand it over to me, one of the things, especially when I first started learning, I would use my finger as a guide. Mm-hmm. So that would inform me uh, as to the angle. So when the edge of my finger would touch the top of the stone, that mm. told me that was about the right angle. And then when I flipped it over to do the other side, I'd do the same thing with my thumb. And essentially and use you just the know edge this of my from thumb. Experience? I just know it from experience. Right. They do make uh, sharpening guides that you can clip on to the back of the mm. knives as well as little ramps. Those are all great, especially if you're starting. Yeah. The hardest part about all of this is the muscle memory portion. It's figuring out how to lock in and maintain that angle without wavering and right. twisting your wrists and all that kind of shit. And that just it's it's like riding a bike or any other anything you've ever had to learn in your life. With practice now, and repetition, you'll get better. What do you think about that? Mo- those machines, those like little, they're like little. Grinder. I think they're the worst fucking thing ever. Really? <laughs> I I have a, a like a almost kind of a, a conspiracy theory that, like, the reality is like they're designed to destroy your knife, so you have to turn around and reinvest again because really? most people. But one, because the knives aren't usually sold for very much money, that are being used with those things, mm-hmm. and. When you're not selling them for very much, very much you're relying on volume. And uh, what better way than to create a thing that does the job for a little bit, but ultimately destroys it, and you have to reinvest. What about those ones where you stick it in the slot and go shink, It's the shink, same kind shink, of thing. Same thing, just fucking It's, just, it's a little slower process. But you, you'll notice the problem with those, the real problem with those, is that you can't sharpen the whole edge. You usually start at the heel or just mm-hmm. a little bit in front of the heel, and then you do the major work. I tripped myself out. I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to cut myself. This is actually still pretty sharp. Oh, uh, it's sharp as fuck. Um, and so the problem is because you're not getting the full length, you'll continue to dish this material out just in front of the heel. And then when you go to cut, there's just this little bit of shit there mm. that's not doing any work. It's right. not doing anything, especially when you're relying on that cutting board. When the knife comes down to the cutting board to do some work, it's not happening. I cut my lunch with that today. Nice. Oh fuck. Cut elk with that. <laughs> that axis, that axis elk. Axis deer and elk. Oh my god, that was killing me. <laughs> I commented. I probably didn't see it, but I was just like, holy shit, that looks so fucking yeah, good. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, well, I learned how to cook. I mean, I, I, I feel like there's some real art to that as well from mm-hmm. uh, my friend Chad Ward, Whiskey Bent Barbecue on um, uh, Instagram. He's a like a, a pit master, like a legit sure. world champion barbecue master. And he's the one who taught me how to cook slowly at low temperatures right. and then sear it after you're done. I, I, I always thought you're supposed to just put it on high heat, cook the shit out of it, and then eat it, you know? Yeah. I mean... It tastes fine that way, too. But, you know, when you're dealing... With one, I really had to learn, uh, yeah. especially in particular, cooking with... Um, wild game is very unforgiving because oh, it's, it's low in fat yeah it's got none yeah it's you're basically eating a sprinter <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> here it the, is right there. Yeah, yeah. So that's the end. I reverse sear it in a pan with grass fed. But you hear that, baby? That's beautiful. Listen to that sound. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's the last of my backstrap. I gotta, I gotta get some more meat. Mm -hmm. I eat the, f I eat so much meat. It's crazy. Yeah. Super, super healthy though, bitch. Yeah. Fuck what you heard. <laughs> um, it looks like it works. No, it. Well, you know what? Too there's there's something really magical about wild game, and um, I don't know what the fuck it is. I really don't, and I don't think anybody does, because I don't think there's enough people out there that are eating it. But right. it has it has a different effect on your body. It feels different when I eat Even it. Even just beef, like if you have like a grass fed beef, oh, yeah, fuck, and yeah. like total like mm -hmm. pasture raised, like oh yeah, oh my god, the difference. It, Do you know about ButcherBox? I'm aware of it. Yeah, yeah, dude, that company's the shit. They'll they'll send it to your house, frozen, grass fed, pasture raised, like in the pasture finished, and uh, it's pretty cheap too. It's a it's a good deal. The it's few one of the sponsors of this podcast, and I I use them all the time. Yeah. I think it's amazing. It's brilliant. No, in the few times that I and it's I actually I feel embarrassed saying that I've only eaten really good beef. Happy beef, essentially, only a few Grass times. Grass-fed beef, yeah. Yeah. It's hard and, to get, well, especially in some places. Oh, my God. When you take a bite, like the, even just that mm -hmm. first bite, it's just like it's, it you've entered different. a whole different world. And it's like, yeah. what the fuck? Just the flavors, everything. I have uh, my, so friend, my friend Mike Hawkridge. Uh, he lives up in uh, British Columbia, like the real British Columbia, like way the fuck up there. And, uh, you know, he's a hunting guide. And um, uh, uh Got him some tickets for the fights in Vegas, and he and his wife came down. And then afterwards, we went out to eat, and uh, they were eating steak. We ate at a restaurant, and they're laughing like, Pfft. like they're used to eating moose, you know. Oh. They're like this meat is like it's like this poor little sick animal, you know. Right. Like, it's all mushy, you know. It's like <laughs> if you eat a piece of wild moose meat, it's like whoa, you eat it, you're like holy shit, it's like filled with flavor and it's right it just it feels like like it gives you energy it's crazy i, I would totally buy that yeah you yeah man. it's like the, the what is that people are trying to like inject young people's blood into the, their oh, bodies yeah. to like try to make themselves feel younger like eating putting good well-sourced like i don't know if those two food. things are <laughs> no I'm probably, i don't know if it's the same probably but, not the same no man. i but i do think that there's I mean, there's got to be something to consuming an incredibly healthy, vibrant animal versus something that's like raised in a cage. Right. I mean, this just, does just make sense. But I don't think this is something that you can. I mean, they have absolutely measured protein content, and the sure. protein content's off the charts. If you look at the difference between the protein content of chicken or regular beef versus moose or elk, it's much higher. Right. Much denser in protein. Like, like I think something like six ounces of Axis deer is 48 grams of protein. Right. Which is incredible, you know? Well, it's interesting to think about that to get, to get that same amount of protein like you don't have to gorge on it mm -hmm. you just you yeah. just eat that little bit yeah you're good a little six ounce piece and you're good even less if you want to stay in ketosis if you're like in a keto diet you really need less than six ounces you need like three ounces right you know um food is just to me as especially as i've gotten older um i've i've started doing a lot more cooking and it becomes a different thing i'm i'm it's not just I'm hungry and you stuff my face. Right. Like the the preparing of food, 
much like we were talking about with craftsmanship. Like there's an art to making food. And I mean, I'm by no means a chef, but I can cook a few things yeah. really good, you know, and I take great satisfaction that I, I fucking love it. You know, I'll take um, my wife used to hate this, but we would get home and we're like, we're hungry. We're going to make some food. Two hours later, <laughs> she's like, she, she's like, yeah, and a lot of people are, are, are the, my brother's the same way. Like, I'm fucking hungry now. I need to eat now. Right. I'm going to rip your fucking head off. Well, what you need to do and is set up some cheese and some like salami or so something So that's like what that. I started doing. Putting out some snackums while I'm working. So everybody just relax. Where, where like I could be starving. I'll get yeah. done with a long ass day grinding and I'll go home and I want to, I like, I have this thing locked in my mind that I want to eat. I'll take two hours to make the fucking thing, even though I'm starving. To die. I haven't wow. eaten since like one o'clock in the afternoon. It's nine o'clock at night. Do you find that as a person who is a craftsman and an artisan, that you try to have that approach with like other things in your life too? Like what you're talk- just talking about with like f- making food and. Yeah, sure. It's, I mean, I feel like I don't really think too much about the fact that I'm doing it this way. It's just kind of the way I do things. And I'm a little bit more methodical and, um, I guess, not necessarily more thoughtful than anybody else. Just like when mm-hmm. I go to – when I approach these challenges or these things I got to do, I I take my time to do them right and try to do them right the first time. I used to uh, – actually, when I was working for Bob, uh, we would have to mock up stuff or build machines or, or fixtures or shit like that. And, um, you know, he was a very – his mindset was quick and dirty. We got to – uh, do this, get this done as quick as possible. And if it doesn't work the first time, we'll make some modifications and we'll try it a second time. If it still doesn't work the second time. So, and so forth, so on and so forth until we got it right, where I would just think it through a little bit more. First time was all I needed. Mm-hmm. But I, there was a, a long time. I used to do a lot of woodworking before I got into metalworking. And I was, uh, I always had to, <laughs> measure five times and cut twice (laughs) right yeah and so i started getting to this point where like i really had to think shit through because it's just to me it felt like a huge waste of time and energy and materials really to go through all that process and then so there had to be a long learning curve though right to like really learn how to especially i would imagine the forging aspect of it probably incredibly difficult yeah well and when i was working for bob uh the only forging we did was uh forging the damascus to make the patterns um and then we would like cut blades out and go from there uh i learned forging about five years ago essentially um working with a a gentleman named uh david lish who's also he's a master bladesmith uh he used to work in seattle he's down in olympia area now but he uh you know he did he's a blacksmith by trade that got into knife making and he's fucking skilled. He's super talented, especially when it comes to Bowie knives and hunters. Like he does some really great work and especially his Damascus patterns are really great. But to watch somebody move and manipulate material and real, like I said before, like stock removal is a very valid way of doing it because the cost of the actual materials, um, is very small compared to stock the, removal stock removal so earlier i was talking about taking a bar uh-huh. and then cutting out the blade shape okay, and then grinding stock and removal yeah because you're literally removing stock from oh, I see, I see. from the from the starting when the you parent material would do that would you take what's left and melt it down you could melt it down you could turn it and forge it into other stuff um it's it's a really interesting 
practice. It's actually, it's kind of like, you know, people refer to yoga as a practice and you're never going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Like there's never going to be perfection in blade forging, but there's always an opportunity to learn something and to practice it. And so when you see, like you have a decent little chunk, you know, you start smashing on that thing and see what you can get out of it to economize that material. And again, like I said, you don't really need to do that because of how inexpensive material is. But if you think back, like even a hundred years, like this high quality material it's fucking expensive. Mm. You had to get the most out of it as you possibly could. And so that's why forging was such a big deal. And then as that price went down, people changed the way they manufactured just because then the time was the thing that cost the most, not the uh. materials. And so they turned around and made it easier to manufacture. They didn't give a shit about the waste. Now, how did you learn handle geometry, like the handle and this hunting knife? How so, did you learn how to do that? Yeah, yeah. So you're This is very unique. It is unique, and actually, uh, it fits my hand perfectly. Yeah, like it fits in your hand, and and that's that's like, the goal. A friend a notch here. Yeah, a friend refers to it as uh, the knife shaking your hand back. Yeah, like it fits so well. Yeah. It feels like you're holding. Like this little like thing that you've got here for people that are just listening. There's yeah, yeah. Uh, there's an initial smoothness in the front, and then there's like this little bump, and then it's, like it's a little thicker step. at the bottom. Yeah, and it just locks in your hand, yeah. and this feels perfect. So I was inspired to do that by a maker named Claude Beauchampville. He's a Belgian oh. maker. Uh, I first oh, met him. Claude. Claude. <laughs> Claude Beauchampville. Oh, wrong. <laughs> Beauchampville. He is a, he's a Belgian maker. He uh, The first time I met him was at Blade Show, which is a huge knife exposition. It's the biggest one in the world that happens down in Atlanta every year, the first weekend of June. He was my table neighbor. And the <laughs> I had never told him this story, but uh, the first time I saw his knives, I was like, the blades and everything look great, but the, the handle looks fucking weird as shit. This handle? Yeah. Very similar to that handle. Right. His his has more of like a nice gentle curve around to the end instead of uh, kind of how that one's kind of at a clip or an angle. Um, and so finally, like on the third day of the show, this really great maker that I look up to uh, came over and he was just like doting over Claude's work and I was like alright there must be something and I haven't I'm, I feel like such an asshole like I didn't even touch the stuff I was just looking at it and judging and I picked it up and I was like what it was it was a totally like what the fuck right cause that same feeling that you have when you're holding like it feels perfect I was like it it totally shifted my entire mindset and paradigm around what I thought handle shapes should look and feel mm. like and that is definitely inspired continued especially for like hard use knives like especially like for a bigger blade like a bush knife that you're trying to chop through stuff with a handle like that is going to benefit you immensely because it just it feels like a natural extension of your hand and is this your your logo yeah, etched into the bottom it's my insignia so it's my name's marco malmasi it's two m's kind of swirling around each other and it looks kind of like a flame dude i'm such a dork for this shit i love it <laughs> so interesting man and that the handle too there's something about the the handle being made out of antler like the antler the feel that it has in your hand too the yeah, organic materials yeah organic especially uh antler and and bone they have this kind of like i don't know if you've experienced it with these Especially cutting up the like the greasy meat, but it mm -hmm. from it has a from my experience, it. it does. It stays grippy. It I doesn't become super slippery or anything. The handle on my bow is actually made out of uh, antler. Yeah. I had it 
custom made. My friend John Dudley had these ones made from a, a bull that he killed on September 11, 2001. Like oh, shit. it's the 9/11 yeah. bull, and he had these handles made out of the antlers of this. And it does the way it sits in your hand. It's like it's got an even if you're sweaty or right. you know there's something you know it's rainy out. It just has an extra grip to it. Well, and especially something like that, like. If you're skinning or breaking down an animal, like it's important, but it's not gonna like it's not like one of those moments where you're relying on that grip for your life. Right. But when you do need that for your life, like right. you're trying to do, or like you're digging in the ground, you're falling down the hillside, and you're trying to jab it and get yeah. a, get a, a hold. Like that's gonna be really important. But that, obviously, that's a very rare, uh, yeah, incident when that one happened. Well, it's just just something just, cool about it too. You know? Well, and just like the tactility of yeah. it. It's just, again, it goes back to the, essentially the user experience. Like, mm-hmm. what does it feel like? How is it different? Like, it makes, it really does make a difference. Yeah, and the, the one of the cool things to me also about antlers is that they shed them. You know, that they right. lose these things every year, and that every year they grow a new one. Do you know that it's the fastest growing organic material on Earth? No, I didn't know that. That shit right there, that giant <laughs> elk antler, Fucking that monsters. grows in a couple months. I didn't know that. Yeah, falls off. Right. They lose it after they're done rutting. So after they're done <laughs> I thought rutting, it was like they fell off and they just kind of no. immediately started like kind of slowly growing no. back. No, they grow the whole thing back in a couple months. It's radical. See if you find a video that shows um, elk antler growth time lapse. Because it's crazy how fast it grows. And it's all just for war. I mean, that's mm-hmm. all that is. It's to show off for the ladies. Hey. <laughs> and it's also for war. That's interesting. Deer. Yeah, that guy. Elk. He Look had, at my rack. <laughs> yeah, he had that rack just so he could fuck people up. Or fuck you know, people, but also elk. You yeah, know? yeah. And definitely people. You get close to him. You know. Fuck me up. But look at that. The following photos were taken about a week apart over a period. Look at this. April 1st. Mm-hmm. Now, check this out. Watch. Just just have it play out there. It says uh, over four months, they show the incredible growth. So April 1st, watch this. This is like at a farm? Uh, that looks like it is. Looks like it's an elk farm. Just let it play out. April 8th, boom. So seven days later. Look at that. April 15th, bang. Look how gr- big that shit yeah. is. Oh, shit, April 22nd. It's getting crazy. <laughs> Boom, April 29th. That's nuts. Boom, May 6th. Holy shit. I know. One month. Nuts. May 13th. Kapow! <laughs> what, motherfucker? May 20th. That's getting a lot of good crazy. handle material on yeah. there. May 25th. Yeah! June 4th. <laughs> right, he's re- getting ready to go to war. Yeah, June 10th, he's thinking about pussy. Look at that. He's like, now... <laughs> Now I'm thinking about some pussy. June 17th, I will fuck a dude up comes near me. June 24th, look at that. And then July 1st. That is crazy. What the fuck? It's cra- it's crazy. And that's not even done. July 8th, July 15th, now he's basically still in velvet. Right. And then July 22nd, that looks hard-horned to me. That looks like he shed his velvet. And then July 29th. Isn't that nuts? Bizarre. So by the time August rolls around, they're like right now, the beginning of September, they're in hard horned. And they'll go to war and they'll keep that shit for, you know, till the end of December. Probably December, I think. Maybe January. And then they'll, they'll lose it. And then they so lose it's it. the fastest growing organic material. Yes. By volume, weight. Yes. Okay. 
Yeah, I think by all those things because it grows so fast and it's so heavy. I mean, that's like 40 pounds just of antlers. Yeah. And it grows over a couple months. Yeah. It's fucking nuts, man. It's seeing pictures. I might have made that up about the fastest growing organic material, <laughs> but I think it's true. I'm looking. It says uh, the first fun fact I found that they can grow 10 pounds of velvet per year. That's just the velvet. Just the velvet. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, but that's probably because uh, it's a velvet farm. You know, they use that stuff for human growth hormone. Like a lot of baseball players were taking. Oh, no uh, shit. Yeah, uh, a friend of mine, my friend John Rivet, shout out to Johnny Rivet. He lives in Alberta, and his one of his friends had an elk farm up there in Alberta, and he grew elk not for the meat but for the um, for the velvet because that stuff that grows grows so fast and right. so so ridiculously potent that they would take uh, antler velvet and they would turn it into a spray that would equal the effects of human growth hormone. How could you do that across species yeah, like that? I don't know. But <laughs> athletes were taking it. Athletes were taking this stuff and it was having this uh, just for like growth hormone reaction in their body. Aches and like it no, sounds like it's superficial. Jack, son. <laughs> get but swole, is kid. It, is it applied superficially or are they like I really it in don't the know. You know, I'm too stupid to be answering your questions. But um there's something about deer velvet that was uh for quite you know, I don't even know if it worked. But it was sure. a big thing in the uh, the supplement and fitness industry that people were getting deer velvet. <laughs> the, the new vitamin. I bought it. That you spray it. Uh-huh. And it's supposed to give you uh, growth hormone. What do you think of that Oli beer? Did you have you had Oli beer before? Yeah, I have. It's great. Okay. It's great. Olympia. Yeah. Is this from Olympia, Washington? Is that what it is? Uh, originally, yeah. I think it's brewed in uh, Milwaukee now. What the fuck? I know. Everything's being sourced overseas. I mean, what? <laughs> um, you're uh, from the Pacific Northwest, but now you live in Connecticut, the state I shit on the most. <laughs> There's a whole video out there of me shitting on Connecticut. Like people have made a <laughs> compilation know? of me shitting on Connecticut. I'm sure, I'm sure plenty of it's warranted. Yeah, there's all of it. <laughs> Shout out to my good friend Tommy Jr. lives in Connecticut. Yeah. Uh, I finally found it. So uh, I think it's just antlers in general are are the fastest growing tissue in in any mammal. Yeah, Making and then issue. elk okay. antler is the fastest growing out of all of them because it's the largest. So it grows in the same amount of time that right. a deer would grow its antlers, but it's far larger. You know, like, like even, if that was Even a more deer, mass than a, than a moose? Uh, no, no, deer would be bigger. A moose would be bigger. Some moose. Because motherfuckers yeah. are huge. Yeah, they're the biggest. They're the biggest of all of the deer species, like, by far. You know, I think... Like a full-grown Yukon moose could be as much as 2,000 pounds. A really big Rocky Mountain elk under normal circumstances is like a fucking giant one is pushing 1,000. Jesus. It's a giant, though. That would be like yeah. a 400-inch bull. Like that one what that's that out mean, in the front. Inch? The the inches the measurement of the size of the inches of the antler okay. like that do you see that one that's in the front yeah yeah that's considerably bigger than this one that sure. the one out in the front is three hundred and eighty two inches that's a giant bull Jeez. and that fucker was about a thousand pounds he was huge yeah. huge moose is My. bigger moose is twice as big yeah. moose would see that thing and go shut the fuck up bitch and he'd be <laughs> going oh I gotta go and they just start running but it's moose they they the weird thing about a moose is their antlers are like a door. You know, it's basically like right. it's, they're so fat and thick. It's not like pokey. I mean, they're basically like they're hitting each other in the head with doors. 
Right. They're like big old gloves yeah. on their hands. But you've seen have you seen I've seen a few pictures where the, especially the moose their their antlers get locked up mm-hmm. and they're fucking stuck. More uh deer than moose. Yeah. Cuz the design of a moose's antlers is like it's not as intertwined but with deer mm. it happens all the time because there's a little bit of flex to the bone. Sure. And so they'll clash and in the force of the two of them slamming <sighs> into each other they get stuck. CTE. Then, well they drown. Oh, geez. they've they've fought like that and then you know wrestled and wound up in the water and wound up drowning there's a horrible video i saw of two deer that got stuck and one of them got killed by a coyote not just a oh coyote a whole pack of them torn to shreds they tore them and they eat them asshole first as i've documented many times in this podcast um i feel so, like a lot of animals do go for the butt first well yeah, lions do. Yeah, a lot of them do. Yeah. I don't know what that's all about. Um, but the um, <clears throat> the one deer was still attached to his dead friend, and uh, these hunters had to help it get released. They sawed one of the antlers off the other deer, mm-hmm. this dead deer, and oh, freed Jesus. it, and then this other one ran off. Like, what a nightmare that guy's lived through. Right. You know, his buddy gets his asshole torn apart. they literally eating him alive while he's stuck to the guy. Oh, my God. Probably fighting yeah. them oh, off yeah. of him as well, kicking and And it could have, I mean, you talk, talk about could have easily been you. I mean, literally could have easily been you. There's right. two deer. One of them gets eaten alive. And the other one's just sitting there, like like living with the horror right. of his. And then these people come over, and he can't get away from the fucking people. And he's like, "These people are gonna eat me!" And they don't even eat him; they let him go. And they're hunters; they freed him up and let him right. loose. Crazy, yeah. You got that? Oh, there's one. Oof. That elk got stuck that the with a dead elk. That's a dead elk. That's an elk head <laughs> that's stuck on this other elks. But see, I don't know what that was. That, to me, makes me think that that could have very easily been, like, an elk found a dead elk and just started headbutting and, and ripped its head off and got stuck with it. They kill each other all the time, right. though. I mean, all the time. Oh, jeez, look at those racks. Dude, when you see, hear them fighting, like, one of the first times I ever went elk hunting, we uh, were coming over this hill, and it sounded like two dudes slamming baseball bats together. Just crack, crack! Crack, crack. And when we came over the top of the hill, these two giant elk were just running at each other and smashing each other. It was a magical day. It was like one of the first times I ever elk hunted. And there's a thing that happens when you hit a peak rut. And when the peak rut happens, they just go crazy all around you. They're all screaming. And it might only happen once in a season. And you just, if you might be there for that couple of hours when it all goes down, it's insanity. Yeah. Insanity. They're just all around you screaming and headbutting each other. I can't even imagine walking over the top of the hill and like fucking stumbling across that. Dude, you feel that. so vulnerable. You're right. like, ah! You just want to hide behind a tree. I'm not supposed to be seeing yeah. this right now. And they're screaming at each other. Yeah. And they're so big, man. It's it's they're screech. Yeah, there's insane. there's two going at it right there, and you hear them. They just clash and slam at each other. Oh yeah, you hear that? It's oh jeez. The poor guy's got the wrong spot. Like, fuck, man. And they don't even know he's alive, right. you know. And they and they kill each other all the time. What well, and the, the hormones they got going on? They're yeah. just like, I don't give a fuck about anything else. Yeah, my friend Cam came across one last year, and uh, he crept up on it. He thought it was bedded, and he shot it with an arrow, and it didn't move. 
And he's like, what the fuck? And he got over to it. It was already dead. Oh, and Jesus. another elk had stabbed it. They stabbed it through the heart, and it right. laid down and, and died. Right. It happens all the time. Sure. They're, you're, they're always finding them that other, other elk have murdered. They don't Crazy. give a fuck. They're just yeah. trying to get that pussy, son. <laughs> trying to get that pussy. <laughs> how how much is the rut? Is that a month? Just a Two month? months? Just yeah. a month. Maybe a little bit longer. There's a second rut sometimes in October when a, another female will go into estrus, and they'll resume the rut. Yeah. It's magical times. Yeah. I can't even imagine stumbling across that. It's pretty cool, man. It's pretty cool. You know, the the real wild, the actual real wild. Well, when you are in Connecticut, man, you got to worry about two things. Hitting a deer with your car and Lyme disease. The Lyme disease. Okay, so that's something that we didn't realize we were moving into. Oh, sure. man. I, I wish, wish I told you because you and I were going back and forth when yeah. you were about to move. Right. Yeah, that was definitely one of the things that uh, we were like, wait, what? They're everywhere? And you gotta- everywhere. Yeah. Ticks, in, if you're listening that, to this, anywhere on the East Coast, um, especially New York has got it really bad. I mean, there's a Lyme disease map, and you see like the instances of Lyme disease on the East Coast. It's horrific, man. Yeah. And I know fucking at least a dozen people that have it, and it stays with you for life. Yeah. And my friend Jim Miller, uh, he's a guy who fights in the UFC, he's got to take a giant fistful of pills every day. Ugh. I mean, I he's got it that. real bad, yeah. real bad. And he's still fighting. Yeah. Still fighting in the UFC, and those deer too. I've been worried about actually when we, were, especially when we were moving out, because I was driving through Pennsylvania. I hit Pennsylvania, at, like we drove cross country at sunset, and drove from there all the way to Connecticut cool. in the dark. And all I could think is like, I'm gonna fucking hit a deer. You see so many of them, right? I, you see so many dead ones on the mm-hmm. side of the fucking road. Yeah, it blows my mind. But the biggest issue has been actually other Connecticut drivers is big, the biggest concern. My wife and I both have been T-boned in the last eight months. People in Connecticut, just they're just giving up, man. They're just hitting the gas and closing their eyes. <laughs> well, it, what's crazy is like <laughs> I've, driven, I've driven in L.A., I've driven in New York, I've mm-hmm. driven in fucking Oregon, Seattle, all kinds of crazy places, but they all have like a culture about how they work. Mm-hmm. And I could not figure out Connecticut. And a friend finally uh, explained it to me. He said... They're driving as if nobody else is on the road. I was like, holy shit, that makes perfect sense. The w- the choices they make are as if nobody else is there. Hmm. I'll be coming up in the, in the passing lane. Somebody's in the lane to the right of me. There's no exits coming up. There's no other cars for like half a mile. I'm cruising probably like five, ten miles faster than them. They change lanes right in front of me. Why? You know why? Why? Because like <laughs> say if you um, – you're – Let's let's say there's a thing that you're making, like mm-hmm. an epoxy, right? When you're making an epoxy, there's several ingredients that you have to add to it. Or maybe that's not the best example. <laughs> like say maybe there's uh, electronics, just whatever it is that you're you're, you're making. So so if you're making a thing, and it requires ten different ingredients. If you are a person in Connecticut, you have eight ingredients. You don't have those other two, and you just do with it without. <laughs> you just deal with it. You're just missing two things, and you just hit the gas and just drive <laughs> places, and no one knows what they're doing. And it's, it's, it's not a real state. <laughs> it's just not. Well, and what's also bonkers that we weren't expecting is that, like, unless you're driving 15 to 20 miles over the speed limit, you're going too slow, or, uh, like, a stoplight and stop signs are a suggestion People use right, 
or left They don't even know why turn. they're speeding, man. They left. don't know where they're going. <laughs> where are they going? They don't understand. The state's so small, you could drive through the state in they're two and, missed, and a half hours. They're missing all sorts of stuff. They're just, they're just so confused. No, and I'm not trying to sit here and shit on fucking Connecticut. <laughs> Too late. But it's just... <laughs> It's just it, that those things have been a serious culture shock for us. Yeah, it's despair, despair. <laughs> they hit the gas. What's crazy is it's a fucking beautiful state. It's Gorgeous. Just, yeah, so especially in the summer. It's man. terrifying trying to drive around that. Ta- and place. you get out of your car, you get bit by a thousand ticks, and you fucking can't walk anymore. The humidity too. Mm. I was not expecting that. It's great on your balls, right? <laughs> that ball sweat. Yesterday I was in my shop. I wasn't doing shit. Like I could have just been sitting here, like fiddling around. With, I was sweating Drenched. my ass off yeah like Summers literally just every i was just like yeah, am i in east coast florida what the hell yeah well you're used to uh you know that pacific northwest doesn't really get that hot and the summers are glorious like it's seattle fucking, and oregon summers god they're glorious everything's fucking neon green oh, yeah. and the sun comes out it's amazing it almost almost makes up for the winter but not quite the That's, lack of winter? Well. Just the, the, the rain? Just the rain. Non-stop rain. I mean, there is the a winter. winter. It's just, it's not, it's not frozen. It's tempered. But it's just, yeah, temperate. just gray. Yeah, so it never gets too crazy. Yeah. And doom. And you're like, I could do this. I could hang in there. And then the summer comes. You're like, hey, it's going to be fine. But <laughs> you're like a, like a beaten wife waiting for your husband to come home. You're like, hey, he's not home now, and I got a great house. Yeah. But he's coming home. He's coming home. He's going to be home for eight months. Yeah. He's just going to piss on your hair for know. eight months. <laughs> it's just eight months of clouds That's and fucking, analogy, fucking craft one. beers and, and just everybody's shooting themselves. <laughs> <laughs> it's dark up there, man. I don't think people are meant to live like that. I mean, I think it's gorgeous, and there's benefits to it for sure. Yeah. But uh, I had a buddy of mine. He tried to convince me to live up there. It's hilarious. My friend Salami. He moved to Portland. Salami. That's his name. Okay. He tried to move to Portland. I mean, he did move to Portland. He's teaching jiu-jitsu up there. It's like, dude, I love it. It's fucking great up here. It's fucking amazing. I go, you don't mind about the winter? You don't mind about the rain? He goes, no. He goes, dude, the people are so fucking cool. The restaurants are amazing. And the summers are so good. Three years later, he's back in L.A. I go, what happened? He goes, I couldn't do it, man. Couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> I go, ah, I see. So it's a thing. It's like you you hang in there for as long as you can, but you can't hang in there forever. Is that what it is? Mm. But some people can. I can hang. I've, you know, a lot of people have, what is it? Seasonal depression syndrome or some shit. Do you think it's because you grew up there? I don't think so because my my sister and my mom both grew up there too. My wife even. They can't handle it. They hate it, especially Mm. the wintertime. The wintertime. When it is that dark gray, like it doesn't snow, mm. it just rains. Just gets and dark. I guess <sighs> I think part of my issue is, like I said, I always worked in restaurants or in fucking, or in a shop. So it's right. like I'm in a virtual cave all the fucking time. Right. So I'm not experiencing that except for the drive home or to work. What's up, Jamie? You just said sad as I was looking up seasonal affective disorder. That's the acronym they give it. Yeah. So sad. Sad. It's, That's what it is, bro. <laughs> it's aptly named. That shit's real. I mean, they probably called it that on purpose. Well, I, I mean, I don't think so. they needed to call it seasonal affective disorder. That's not the best. Feel like shit because of the rain disease. <laughs> well, something isn't it something about like the lack of vitamin D? I mean, so light from the I'll tell you what, though. I'll yeah, there are, it, there's light therapy. I'll take it sure. over Connecticut all day. <laughs> I'll take Seattle over Connecticut all day. You know what I dream about sometimes is Denver. Leaving Connecticut? 
I lived in Denver for only a few, a few months. <laughs> People that live in Connecticut right now are going, what the fuck, dude? Actually, the running gag, folks. I don't really care. No, this actually, when we first moved Denver's to Connecticut. Denver's amazing. Denver's fucking beautiful. I fucking love Denver. Love it. Love it. What was uh, when I first moved there? I thought I was, so. I grew, oh, grew up in Washington, right at the base of the Puget Sound. Water around me. I actually used to like sail on a racing team and stuff like that. I was oh like, wow! I'm gonna miss the water so much, mm. and it was so green too. I got there and I was like, I don't think I care about the water. I care about the green. But the second the spring rains hit, everything turned green. All the trees started blossoming. I was like, holy shit! And it was beautiful. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. Was, the only thing I hated about Denver. Everybody had a fucking dog, and nobody cleaned up the dog shit. Oh, that's not That was the everywhere. Lazy bitches. I just didn't understand it. It was like, what the fuck? You got a dog. You're not going to do It's probably worse now because all the the free pot, all the legal pot, (laughs) it's everywhere. But you know what what it has that's amazing, man, is the view of the mountains. Mm. There's something about being right there and seeing those Rockies that just, like, humbles you. It puts it in perspective. Well, that's what... That's what being in Puget sounds like as well, mm, yeah. because you always got Mount Rainier. Like, right. the, uh, it's crazy. Like the road, the cities were engineered so like you're coming up and down hills, and like, boom, the right. fucking mountain right. is right, and it's a monster. Mount yeah. Rainier is a monster. Yeah, that's amazing, man. We went up looking for Bigfoot up there once, me and Duncan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we found him. We just didn't want to tell anybody. Um, that yeah, that area too is so densely wooded. Mm-hmm. It's really incredible. When you go walking through the woods, like there's, you don't make any sound when you walk. And you don't leave any footprints because there's just like feet thick of pine needles and, and moss. Needles and, and, yeah, it's yeah. just so soft and it's interesting. And, Lush. And filled with elk, man. There's elk everywhere up mm-hmm. there. And you, like, they run. They run like 30 feet and you can't see them anymore because there's just like so many trees. Yeah, they're fucking gone. <laughs> my, my in-laws, they live south of Olympia. And they have 16, 16 acres out there oh, uh, where yeah. they live. And nice. uh, like three or f- – I think it's like four or five that are like cleared for like a field and a barn and the house and stuff. rest of it's all wooded. Wow. Then they got black bears that cruise through there, large cats or like oh, bobcats yeah. and lynx and shit. Uh, and elk for sure. And they have an orchard and the elk are just out there standing on their hind legs. Yeah. Eating that shit up. And they're beautiful. They're cool to watch too. Yeah, that's. I mean, that is a lush tropical rainforest up there. It's so wild. It's it's so it's so interesting too. When you when you're up there, you you realize like how diverse it is with life when you're walking around in it, and you see just elk shit everywhere. And you go walking <laughs> through the woods. There, it's just yeah, infested just these, with them. Piles all these yeah. little pellets, of, little marbles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it it's looks gorgeous, like uh, man. milk. That's- mm-hmm. Don't want to eat there's those. so much life up there. There's salmon. Yeah. There's so much salmon. There's eagles up there. I mean, it's it's, it's gorgeous, man. Yet the, here sh- you are in like, fucking Connecticut, bro. Uh, mushroom hunting. There's all kinds oh, of yeah. stuff. Like you yeah. can really live off the land. Mm-hmm. There's some great spots to go chanterelling in Olympia area. Sure, love getting out in the woods and just walking around. It's it's actually been really cool taking, especially when we go back in the summertime and especially in the summertime to go visit family. Uh, to take my little dude. Uh, my son's two years old. He just turned two. And so walking with him, and he just fucking loves it. Walking through the – and you don't have to worry about the fucking ticks. Right. Biting you and getting lime and shit like that. Right. You can go out there and roll around all you want. But going up, they have a, a nice little, like, uh, quarter-mile trail goes up through the woods. And we just walk through that thing. He just marches along the whole fucking way. And just that experience of stopping and listening. You can hear the mm-hmm. red-tailed hawk 
crying yeah. over the top of everything else. And then you, they have great horn owls from time to time. That Crucifer was there. You can hear the little chipmunks and red yeah. squirrels. You can hear the fucking crows and the, the stellar jays and yeah, everything. And stopping, telling him, stop. You hear that? You hear that? And he just stops. And he's so intense. And it's it's wild to see a little kid who's so fucking rambunctious mm-hmm. when he's in the house, but you get him out in into the woods. I'm overwhelmed with senses. He's just listening. There's absorbing so much everything. Input, right? It's so cool. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it amazing too looking at it through the eyes of your child? Yeah. Just watching them experiencing what? all these things. It's it's like you can almost see like the little yeah. cogs turning right. in their head. Yeah. They're just like, Oh shit. Yeah. What no, is it's that? amazing. That's one thing that I didn't anticipate before we had children. It's like watching them learn. Like, oh wow, like there's a tr- crazy trip you get out of watching kids learn. Right. You know, there's, there's something about like you learn watching them learn. And it really sort of reinforces this idea that every human being is essentially, I mean, they're not a blank slate, but they are most certainly subject to the influences of their environment what they experience especially and they, they take ages. that data in yeah, yeah. Dude, it's crazy like we have he loves maps we we got maps maps yeah we oh, got wow. you know how like a lot of kids get those like bedroom uh maps that have like the roads and stuff mm-hmm. we got one of the world like the globe and none of the countries are marked out on it or anything but we knew some of the spots and so we started teaching like he knows where like over a hundred different countries are like he knows wow, where two? they're at he knows where they're at. He can point out the difference between Cambodia, Guam, Vietnam, Nepal, Russia. You know, like Russia really? and China are pretty That's easy. Crazy. But then you go over to Europe. He's like Hungary, Turkey, Greece. He, like, he, he knows those? He knows where Portugal is. He knows Dude, where Spain. I can show you three. It's like, what the fuck? I can tell you fuck? where Africa is. I'm pretty sure I know the difference between Australia and New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason I know them is because I'm playing the game with yeah. them. So we got more wow. maps that have like the world again, but everything's marked out and he's starting to learn all the different flags he knows he knows like at least a dozen of the different flags they're so open you know children they're i mean they learn language so quick they're so open i mean think about kids learn language by the time they go to school they already know how to talk yeah you know they don't they don't learn school they just learn how to talk and when my wife has her master's degree at the university level for teaching english as a second language so and she's with him all day long oh wow and so and she her she comes from a family of teachers. Her parent, both of her parents, her sister, her great grandmother, or sorry, her grandmother, all educators. And oh, this must be amazing for her to be a mom then. Yeah, and so she well, like Teach her I own mean, she's kids. with the dude all day long. Like yeah. she fucking loves the shit out of him. But you know, like you try spending right. fucking day in and day out with the little dude. Like the little, the little fucking numbskulls running yeah. around and trying to learn how to interact with the mm-hmm. world. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. But it's so cool. And and with that background, understanding how to interpret what's going on in his brain a little bit, so to help nourish it, essentially, to help like you know just make things that much more solid. Like it's fucking crazy, and That's he awesome. speaks so clearly. That's awesome. Yeah, so I listen, I gotta get out of here, but I know yeah, yeah, you yeah. have a blind auction. Yeah, you have. Uh, <clears throat> you why don't you go grab those knives so we can yeah, show? Yeah, I'll go grab those real quick. Grab them real quick, and we'll we'll tell people about the auction. But he's uh, he's got these fucking killer knives that uh, he's made, these uh, chef's knives. Is that the one that's going up? I think so. God, look how beautiful that is. We're looking at his uh, Mamousy Fire Arts Instagram page, and 
the design, the pattern on this chef's knife, it doesn't even look real, folks. I mean, it looks like someone's, it looks like someone put like one of those crazy cartoon filters. Oh, yeah. Doesn't it? Is that That's it? The knife That's right the there. knife right there. So there's that one. So people can see it. And yeah, yeah. Here it is right here. I'm holding it up. So this knife is uh, for auction. No, actually, no, this so is not the knife that one is not. This one this here one in the cases, you can pull that out. And how can people auction? The, how can people bid on? So this, this is for benefit for Alex's, uh, the Alex, or sorry, LA loves Alex's lemonade stand, which is for childhood uh, cancer research. And so online, it smells good. It smells good. Mm. If you go to uh, my Instagram profile, Malmasi um, Fire Arts on Instagram, uh, I have a link actually in my bio that goes straight to the auction page for this knife. Now, these knives are, uh, right now, my current prices, this one knife is uh, $4,200. But right now, I think the bidding is at like, oh, there it is, 2100 So there's a chance that somebody could get it for less than what I would normally and value when it, is it um when does it end? When does the yeah, bidding so the, end? The auction ends on Saturday the 8th. So that's when the actual event is. And I'm actually going to be there at the event, hanging out. Um, if anybody's got any questions about it, talk about it, or you know, just kind of hang out and That's dope. meet folks. But you know, it's interesting. Like doing this kind of work is the first time I've ever had anything that I felt like I could give back with. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, like I always just did shitty little jobs. But this right. is the first time I feel like I have something I can offer. So, and coming up from very little, very humble beginnings, this was an opportunity now to feel like I can give back. And so. That's very cool. I try cool. to do this from time That's to time. That's very cool. For sure. Well, listen, man, I'm glad we finally got together. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for making me these awesome knives. I will cherish them forever. Absolutely. You're it's my a pleasure, my man. Amazing craftsman. Thank it was you. cool to do this. Yeah, Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks brother. for being here. All right, folks, we'll be back soon, you fucks. Bye. Bye bye. <laughs>